0: Through grit fashion of, um, of Mount Sinai, uh, Dr. Dubinsky will be delivering Dr. Kiefer's talk on managing behavioral health in IBD. Great, thank you. So um, I don't consider myself to be a grit expert, but I'm going to try my best. And even yesterday at the bookstore, I bought a book about grit, which says it's all about passion and perseverance. So I'm going to try and be passionate and persevere through um, Lori's wonderful work. And the reason why I think we should always never forget the impact of behavioral health on IBD, setting the background that we know that the data suggests that about 50%, particularly Crohn's patients, have secondary functional GI symptoms even in the face of complete transmural or deep remission. So the importance of overtreatment and/or undertreatment in the in the context of not understanding the impact of behavioral health um, on IBD is uh, cannot be understated. All right. So. Um, a more recent publication that's out there that talks about the fact that physician and patients are, there's a clear disconnect. Now we on the clinical side know that how patients define remission even clinically is very different than how we would define remission. This flare concept is a constant dialogue about I had, a, I had five flares over the last month. What does that even mean? It means that you had a few loose stools or you had some cramping that could be not even related at all to the underlying biologic process. So uh, this was a publication that showed the difference between what IBD patients and providers with respect to their psychological concerns. And if you look particularly on the patient need versus what was actually discussed, no one should be shocked at the idea that the impact of IBD on mental health, which is what the patient feels they need to talk about, is only addressed one third of the time uh, by providers. Uh, and the IBD impact on emotions. So, we definitely know that patients want to talk about it. There was a global survey that was done actually um, through Pfizer called UC Narratives, which uh, was about a thousand physicians and a thousand patients globally. And they asked what were like the key points of UC, because Pfizer, this was on label for ulcerative colitis um, prior to uh, tofacitinib launch in May, was the idea that what are the things that you most want to talk about with your doctor that you don't? And it was how exhausting IBD could be and how if we ask too many questions, we fear that we're gonna be one of those pain in the ass patients and the physician's not gonna wanna answer our questions. So not having enough time, being annoying by asking a lot of questions, particularly about the impact of IBD on their mental health. So we know this is a big part of um, understanding the care of an IBD patient. There was a systematic review of the comorbidities of depression and anxiety with IBD, and again, um, this was published a couple of years ago, and they looked at the level of evidence, which as you can see is moderate, which is far better than the level of evidence we have for even reactive TDM. So I want to put in the context that no one's putting guidelines together or a consensus statement on the impact of IBD uh, on the emotional health, yet we're putting out papers that are out of date by the time they're published, such as the TDM uh, guidelines. So when you look at what are the, the prevalence of depression in IBD versus general population. You could see the first was just um, general pop, 21% in IBD, 13% in the general population. Active disease, more patients tend to have reactive change in their emotions when they're active, but again, that's not surprising that when you're active it's depressing, especially when you come out of a state of inactivity. Uh, it didn't look to be that Crohn's disease was any different than you see in de- uh, description of their the impact of disease on anxiety and depression um, and also um, other chronic diseases which is very interesting that IBD had a less rate of depression anxiety compared to other diseases which is the first time I ever saw IBD highlighted in a positive way when we talk about the impact of disease <clears throat> and one of probably the most important things and Dave Binion really um, and the group of Pittsburgh were really <coughs> sorry instrumental in um, talking to us about that a small percentage of patients take up the bulk of the cost. And this has been an ongoing dialogue for a long time that we know those patients who we call frequent flyers, patients who are um, often visiting the ED, a lot of after hours phone calls driven by, no one called them back during the working hours, the anxiety um, around any flare um, or change in symptoms, someone getting back to them right away, but the The problem is is that the bulk of the expenditure is really driven by factors of behavioral health in the background of IBD. And so I think the underestimation of anxiety and depression and how it drives healthcare utilization is really a strong statement to be made. We now know that outpatient care for IBD has just surpassed inpatient surgical care for IBD. So we know that medications are expensive, and we know that managing patients on the outside is now more costly than managing patients on the inside. So the idea that healthcare utilization and minimizing healthcare utilization and understanding what are the barriers to keep patients um, from not using EDs and um, narcotic use. I mean, at DDW, if you looked at what was hot at DDW in 2018, there was a lot about opioid use in IBD. It was the first time, because we do a Best of DDW as part of Cornerstone, and we know it—a 1,000 abstracts for the last eight years that get submitted. This is the first time that we actually included abstracts on opioid use, not because we didn't want to historically. There was none. And this was really highlighting the fact that this is sort of becoming a big problem, especially people who get narcotics early on in the first year of IBD management. That becomes a pattern for over one-third of our patients. So this is like a really important aspect to understand that what drives narcotic use is understanding the background of whether or not patients have depression and anxiety. So if we don't appreciate the impact of behavioral health on having IBD and then the downward effect as it, used, as it comes to also narcotic utilization, we're missing a huge window of opportunity. And again, the main drivers are chronic pain, narcotic use, depression, and low social support. So we also know that in the absence of confidence, self-management, self-care, resilience, grit, Uh, what we call bounce back without that perseverance. um, The idea being that we won't be able to get patients who were basically pushed back at any point. Imagine sort of that Bobo doll concept of a patient constantly being pushed back and the inability to bounce back. And that inability to bounce back is what really drives healthcare utilization costs. And so we really need to understand how important it is to really uh, impact the um, the role on mental health or what we call psychosocial impact of the disease. We know that the symptoms of depression overlap with a lot of the symptoms of IBD and hence why I was getting to at the beginning that if we don't understand the secondary effects of IBD on symptoms that mimic it often leads to overtreatment. Talk about forgetting using KT Park's um, TDM model that predicts you need 20 per kilo, patients who have completely normal labs never scope but have persistent symptoms on 40 milligrams of prednisone and escalated to 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram of infliximab because of persistent symptoms that are due to non- IBD-related but functional-related symptoms. So the healthcare utilization costs that are associated with our lack of understanding of the synergy between the brain-gut access in patients with IBD is really, we're, we're seriously under-managing under a bulk of our patients. So it really makes it hard to manage IBD because these patients, as I noted, are constantly regarded as patients who are just un, we're just not able to, you know, when you roll your eyes as you walk into a, a room, you know that patient because you you can expect you know what's going to be the conversation, but you don't do anything proactively about it. You just keep rolling your eyes every time you go and see this patient. We all have those. But the ability to actually utilize some of our psychosocial support is really, is really uh, important. I think this talk uh, lends itself nicely to the debate that... Um, she's from Robin just had which is really about this proactive versus reactive so we could wait for patients to become depressed or anxious and impact healthcare and say I don't know I can't predict who's going to have these issues and be reactive and refer on as patients anxiety and depression becomes a thing meaning Maybe instead of saying we want to identify those who have depression and anxiety, why don't we take a proactive approach and say how can we prevent patients from developing depression and anxiety? How can we identify these patients early and screen them? So I think one of the things that we know is that patients need a toolkit they need a whole bunch of tools. That doesn't mean they need all of them, but if we don't provide a toolkit other than show up your infusion, collect a Calprotectin, I mean, if you ever hear yourself what you're telling an IBD patient who may have an underlying anxiety already around just just life, not even disease related, and you're telling them that at week 14, I'm gonna check a drug level, I'm gonna wait for that to come back, get a Calprotectin, because I'm gonna follow, like, it's noise. You know, they already are anxious about the fact that they have pain or diarrhea and we're just adding a whole bunch of new level of anxiety if we don't give them the toolkit to self- be, be self-effective and self-manage. So Lori um, developed a, a method called the GRIT method, which is great, gaining resilience and transitions through uh, IBD. Um, It really was to sort of develop early on some self-effective psychologic care for all IBD patients. It's really giving them the empowerment of being self-effective and to be able to self-manage, and Robin will talk a little bit about how important it is to be self-effective and self-manage if you want to have a successful transfer of care. Um, I say that more than transition, because transition is sort of very loose in its terminology, but we're talking a hard, effective transfer. What do we need to do? Um, And part of it is also understanding whether or not, forget whether a patient's 18, let's just say, is this patient self-effective? Can they actually take all the things we've just taught them as pediatric gastroenterologists, have them sit in the chair of the adult gastroenterologist and tell them exactly what they need in order to continue to be self-effective? So the GRIT method um, really has uh, a multi-layered approach where uh, I'll be honest with you, when Lori organizes her um, GRIT team, the physicians are actually not in the room. So every Thursday at noon, she meets with everybody else in the center and kind of tells us uh, whether or not we need to get better at uh, helping these patients be more self-effective. And part of the toolkit, we're actually not involved in the toolkit. Um, And basically, she develop a method where the higher the GRIT score, the more self-effective and confident you are to be able to manage your care. And so those patients who have a low GRIT score basically go into a one-year intensive uh, resiliency program where they basically give them a toolkit to at the end of the year, you graduate and you're resilient and you can then therefore take over your care. Um, And she sort of has this um, timeline where she's been able to enroll uh, patients. I'll show you some of her data, but essentially it is um, a boot camp. And it's made up of different, different segments or domains because, for example, if you identify that a patient is nutritionally deficient, you need to have a nutritionist not a social worker or a psychologist. You know, you have to understand that there's many different domains to resilience in IVD patients. Um, And her concept really of treat to target is, her philosophy is if we can identify those patients who have low grit or low resilience, we can teach them the skill set to decrease depression, anxiety, and healthcare utilization. And so her target is to diminish depression, anxiety in our patients. Um, a lot of the grit targets are based on confidence so how even grit became a reality is that um, our dean at Mount Sinai, he's he's a neurobiologist and he's all about resilience. And resilience has really mainly been in the realm of sexual abuse or trauma, uh, physical abuse, patients who have overcome the odds after a traumatic uh, event. No one has ever really looked at it uh, in the face of chronic disease. Um, And you know that over the past couple of years, resilience has sort of become something very sexy. I mean, we never really talked about that in, uh, in our space. And this woman who I bought this book has a character lab in Pennsylvania, uh, and the ability to look at all the different characteristics of building your character okay uh, and resiliency or grit is one of the characteristics that she teaches people and she 's used it for professional athletes etc anyways i 'll uh, next time I see you i 'll tell you if i uh, if i built up my character but so the ability is that you need to be optimistic you need to be confident you need to have a social support so I said to my Dean what's the one thing that builds resilience and he said optimism and I said well how do you show optimism to these women for example who've undergone um, significant abuse and she said through mentorship She said, if you have someone where someone looks up to and feels optimistic that I could be that person, that really has changed in the world of resiliency. So uh, it was a very interesting... um, thing to understand how we can take that to the chronic disease state and building up the ability to have social support, optimism for patients, and build their grit. This is sort of the grit scoring tool, uh, which is her um, dividing up into sort of general health, resilience goals, your independence goal, and your um, just sort of across Uh, overall your care paradigm so it's interesting to see and we'll see what it means and essentially after you've been scored you get a whole grit plan so they have a grit coordinator who says okay you need to meet with this person you need to see our nutritionist you need CBT you need hypnotherapy you need to see our pharmacist, because you have polypharmacy, you need to understand the role of marijuana in your chronic pain state. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things that um, they're looking at. So I think one of what we'll look for with Lori's care plan is really what's gonna happen um, to these patients and whether or not we do set uh, do manage healthcare utilization better. Interestingly, she uses a lot of telemedicine because you can't, and she does a lot through telemedicine, so I think you know you develop sort of a digital psychiatrist or a digital psychologist in the world of telemedicine, and there's a lot of apps, as you know, uh, that patients could do deep breathing. They can do self-regulation. Uh, Lantern, which is a company that actually just folded, unfortunately, has a and was acquired. University ...by Pittsburgh to actually start to have an online um, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, sessions using uh, this app for patients who have depression or anxiety, and at DDW they actually randomized patients to this app versus talking to someone in your standard of care, and they actually showed that patients who use the app obviously had better outcomes uh, so the ability to actually have uh, digital psychiatry has actually impacted healthcare utilization this was at uh, University of Pittsburgh so we'll see what the future holds um, so so far in a year and a half she this is the data on 170 patients um, and basically any specialist in the IBD Center at Sinai sends them they um, they either could be eligible or not and there if they're not Um, engaged, then there's no way they're going to be committed for a year to get themselves together at the end of a year and build self-efficacy. So here's the 80 patients that she evaluated for um, uh, acceptability and feasibility, which is just showing you the um, median number of visits for the team is eight in in that year. Uh, So this is like an intense program. These patients have to actually be constantly engaged. Um, And then 60% of patients met the criteria for graduation, meaning they graduated and they were empowered with resilience at the end of it, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, On the median age, this is 34, so this is mainly for our adult population. Uh, And as I, sorry, 58% of the patients were female. So not all patients were female, because there's this concept that female patients with IBD have IBS more than male patients. We had a slight increase uh, in that. Um, And the baseline GRIT score was 45 and the six month GRIT score was 78.4. So there was definitively in six months you can actually empower someone, teach them skill set to make them resilient. Because a lot of people didn't know whether or not you can actually impart resilience on somebody. Um, You can imagine that someone who has a lot of grit, but they're constantly beaten down, they lose a lot of it. So how do you get that back to a patient who has an underlying, Sort of grit within them, and so this was kind of interesting that you can teach it, um, and basically that the lower your grit score, the more ED visits, the more hospitalizations, and the more length of stay. So these numbers are actually you know orgasmic to the healthcare, uh, to your people, the population health, and all of your administrators at your hospitals because that's what they want to know is whether or not it does a program exist like a medical home specifically for IBD that could actually um, improve outcomes. So essentially as the work continues, but I want everyone to uh, understand the concept that your job will be a lot easier if you actually ask your patients if they need help because they will reduce the utilization, they'll reduce the phone calls, and they'll reduce complications, to be completely honest. These patients will not be, hopefully, not as dependent on prednisone and narcotics, which we know are really the biggest issues that lead to um, complications in our patients, and even mortality. And so we need to understand this, and that um, rather than the negative psychology approach, which is are you depressed, are you anxious, do you need an SSRI, do you need to see a psychiatrist, why don't we establish and screen our patients up front, are you at risk of depression and anxiety, and whether or not we can actually sort of impart resilience into you. And so I think we'll uh, stay tuned for uh, Lori's next move, but I think this is an exciting time in IBD in terms of approaching and understanding the psychological care to improve our overall um, approach for our patients. So thank you so much for your uh, attention to this.